Hey, just a heads up. The episode you're about to listen to is about Crimes of the Future, directed by David Cronenberg and written by David Cronenberg. Some relevant trigger warnings for this movie include extreme gore and self-harm, and our hosts rank this movie as scary? If you'd like to learn more about the movie discussed this evening, please visit our website, progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, for show notes and a full transcript. After the spooky music, we'll talk about the movie in full, so be forewarned, there will be spoilers. Now, let's get on to the show. Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. We're starting off a month of talking about the works of director David Cronenberg, and tonight we're talking about his latest outing, Crimes of the Future. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cenobites. First, they're here to challenge the sexy werewolf, sexy vampire binary, my co-host, Ben Conn. Ben, how are you tonight? Well, I'm real worried that this movie is just a real elaborate advertising campaign for Cronenberg's new line of Ikea stores. Furniture is special. You got the Cronenberg beds, the Cronenberg's chairs. They give you orange goo and purple candy bars. This is definitely not IKEA. This is not austere enough, although it is as uh, perplexing as the IKEA setup. So, you know. Yes. Yeah. And also the cinnamon roll of Cenobites, our co host, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? Feeling great. Feeling Cronin's got a Berg. This movie has everything that you expect out of a, out of Cronenberg. All of the organs, the human organs, the furniture organs, the PlayStation organs, they're all there. And uh, search organs. This movie feels like if someone made a film out of a Stefan sketch from SNL Weekend Update. <laughs> oh, God. It's got everything. Be, mer- like sarcophagus autopsies, Scott Speedman. Toxic candy bars. It's a lot. <laughs> and our guest tonight, writer, editor, and noted Kristen Stewart stan, Megan Logan. Megan, how are you tonight? I'm feeling good, feeling weird after watching this movie. Worried that some of my organs registration might be overdue. So I feel like that's something I need to check as soon as we get off of this. But yeah, feeling pretty good overall. God, that would be how it works. Like your lungs are overdue. Go in and renew your lungs. That's what that DMV sticker is now. Yeah. I love Kristen Stewart's character in this movie because it's the kind of like greasy, mousy, inappropriately horny, utter creep show of a character. But it's played by Kristen Stewart. She's so fantastic. It's like. You see characters, like cartoon characters, you see like anime characters doing the senpai notice me thing and it's cute, but it's also like it always feels kind of weird and off-putting. And this is that energy. This is that what that energy should be. It's not cute. It's terrifying. It scares Vigo Mortensen. It scares you. It scares everybody, even though she is small and very awkward. He's going um, to put her hands in your mouth. It is not good. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> It almost went all the way around for me. Like there was her, her performance was so good in this movie that I'm like, do I want her hands in my mouth? I mean, maybe. Do, do you want me to answer that? Cause I, I mean, I can give you my answer for that. <laughs> Definitely a situational question. Yeah, yeah. Context is really important. 
If you say so. <laughs> I do, in fact. <laughs> Can't look at Vigo Mortensen in the mouth. It's inappropriate. Well, Ben has John the, drawn the short straw on this recap tonight, so they're going to try and attempt to tell you what this movie is about. Take it away, Ben. Well, this movie's mostly vibe, so we're just going to really just tear into it. So really, Crimes of the Future is your run-of-the-mill, dime-a-dozen, biopunk art noir movie. Movie starts with a child eating a garbage can and then getting murdered by his mother with a pillow. You know, nothing you ain't seen a hundred times. Real cliche. Yeah, we got our main couple, Saul Tesner and Caprice, a.k.a. Vigo Mortensen and Leia Saido, a pair of performance artists who do super artsy surgery on Saul's freaky, spontaneously created organs. Because this is a world where humans are evolving all weird and there's no pain or infections and it's all very Cronenberg. They register the organs Saul makes and Caprice cuts out with the National Organ Registry, which is run by just the most Catchy little fuckers you ever done see, including one played by Kristen Stewart, who wants that weird ass surgery sex with Aragorn. Unbeknownst to Caprice, Sala started working undercover for Detective Cope. There's where their nut noir part comes in. This undercover work has a meeting with various figures in the performance art scene, like a dancing poser covered in ears and a guy who puts a sex zipper in his stomach and enters into a neo-organ beauty pageant, which never ends up actually factoring into the plot. After a surgery show, Saul is approached by the father of dead garbage can eater boy to do an autopsy. It's Scott Speedman, and he's the leader of the evolutionary revolutionaries that Saul is supposed to try and infiltrate. They want to change the world by modifying themselves to eat plastic. And the kid at the beginning was born eating plastic, And even this movie knows that's not how science actually works. But also, fuck it, it's a movie. At the autopsy show, which Scott Speedman thinks will show the world that his son was born being matter eater lad, they they learn to their fucked up horror that the kid's corpse has already had all of his organs surgically replaced. It was Kristen Stewart who did it. Scott Speedman takes a drill to the head. And the secret of plastic eating evolution is successfully covered up. Because, you know, noir. The movie ends with Saul deciding that after all this, maybe evolving is cool after all. He decides to leave his new, new organs inside him. And the movie finishes with him eating a plastic candy bar that's fatal to non-evolved humans. And he just looks into the camera and smiles, you know, vibes. And cries. And cries. Yeah, one one single tear. Yeah. Very, very artsy. Did he die? Now, I do want to I do want to point out that Scott Speedman doesn't get one drill. He does get double teamed by two ladies who both drill him. Yes. Uh, yeah. Back of the head. Which, you know, go to Pornhub and type in like do <laughs> drilled by two ladies. Like normally you're in for a good time. Scott Speedman does not have a good time getting drilled by these ladies. The ladies have a good time, though. Ladies have a great time. Ladies are having a good time this whole movie. We, we got- work for a company that is implied to be sinister but that never factors into the movie or at least we never find out what's up with that in a way that like feels weirdly lynchian like yes there are evil organizations they're doing stuff Mm. so here's why all of the things that the movie doesn't explain or don't end up mattering kind of really don't bother me about this movie because I think the movie just does such a great job of just throwing you into what it's all about. Like the, like when you're when it starts with like and now this small child is eating a garbage can and his mother just murders him with a pillow. I'm like, cool. That's the kind of movie we're in. 
like whatever the fucking weird ass direction we're in, we're going for like, we're starting with artsy surreal child murder. Let's just buckle up wherever the fuck this ride goes. Like, I guess we're there. Nothing feels weird in a way that breaks the movie. It all feels weird in a way where it's like, yup, this is what everything else preceded in this movie has led me to believe would be the vibe. It is consistently weird. Yes. And, you know, this movie does not throw any, like, curveballs. I mean, because it's one ex- one it's long curveballs. curveballs, you know. There's no, this is, it is a weird installment in Cronenberg because usually Cronenberg movies have kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing. And this one is, like, meta tongue-in-cheek. And I would put it right up there with a lot of the other art movies like Suspiria and Velvet Buzzsaw that we've seen as being very accurately, how should I put this? I'm going to, it is a very astute parody of the art scene in its way. The capturing of the feeling of artist gonna art. It feels very meta literal in this way of storytelling, you know, art or creation as digging into yourself and showing what's inside you to the world. I think there's a viewing of this movie as being an extremely, extremely literal form of his vision of the creative process. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that really struck me is immediately I felt like I had to put aside whether or not I was enjoying the movie. (laughs) (laughs) I think you just had to, whether or not I was enjoying it became immaterial. It's an experience. Yeah, to whether or not it had something to to say or you could learn something from it. I think what I found most impactful, what I took away from it was kind of what you're talking about. Like the, you know, the way that you enter into this movie and you immediately just have this sort of unflinching acceptance of the utterly bizarre. There are things that characters flinch at and that does give you sort of your calibration within this world. but you know, the camera work is pretty pedestrian. None of the words that are coming out of people's mouths are so crazy. I feel like when you get something that is specific to the world, it's easy to to sort of grasp. So you're not encountering anything that's so out there that it feels alienating. Cronenberg's kind of taken you by the hand and said, okay, all of your touch points, all of your world stuff is, is there, but I'm your North Star. Everything is based on this thing that I am telling you. And trust me when I say that this weird digestion chair is normal. This orchid bed is normal. There are technicians for it. They come like plumbers and it is normal. Yeah, I just, I loved the sort of normalizing of really strange stuff but not in a way that felt to me really heavy-handed. This movie, in a way, reminded me of, like, Yu-Gi-Oh! In its way of (laughs) combining, like, the fantastical and the mundane, where it's like, no, this is going to be, like, pretty recognizable to, like, you know, we're going to treat this the way, like, you know, you would treat, like, mega sports stars, but it's children's card games. This is like, no, we're still in the world of art and fine art and super bougie, like <laughs> fine art and performance art. But now it's all surgery. Like instead of Yu-Gi-Oh cards, it's crazy surgery machines. But it's, it's time not... to, 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 to do surgery. Yeah, God. <laughs> like just that way of being like, 
you know, it's similar. Like we're going to give you the familiar, but a version of the familiar that's really obsessed with this one thing I want to do a lot with. It is one of those things that you see a lot in like anime where you have this one like super crazy world conceit that everybody just accepts and then is like so fully incorporated, you know, and that does come from the the very heady science fiction stuff from the 80s and in some cases back from Cronenberg himself. So, you know, it's a sort of self-referential system there. But the way that this movie is so genuine about everything and everybody's performance is really amazing. Like you really do get involved with these characters because they are cartoony, but the actors perform those cartoony roles with such like real genuine portrayals that it's sold like it's i I, i'm so like senpai notice me girl sells it to me even though she seems like a fucking cartoon character vigo mortensen is physically incapable of being ironic yeah Yeah. i guess so i'm I'm gonna be like the dissenting voice on this one i think be the hater let um, the hate flow through you jeremy There are Cronenberg movies that I like, and we're going to talk about some of them later this month. And there's one person that makes a lot of movies that almost none of them do I enjoy. And I have to say, this is Cronenberg at his most David Lynchian. Like, <laughs> his most, like, this is the weird shit I want to do, so I'm going to do it. Fuck you if you don't like it. Kind of stuff. Oh, so and, like... I watched this movie consciously trying not to hate it as I was going through it. And by the time <laughs> I got to the end, it ended. And I was like, God, I know what you're doing with that last shot. But also, I feel like I missed something. So, like, let me go back and try and, like, look at some, you know, some summaries, some explanations of this. I went back and pulled up, like, what happens in this movie and looked at different people explaining the themes and everything. And I was like, no, I got it. I just don't care. Like, I just, <laughs> like that literally my reaction to, to this at the end is just like, so what? I feel like David Cronenberg cut open his stomach, pulled out his weird extra organ and was like, look. And I was like, gross. I don't want to see that. I don't care. Like, I'll, I like it. it. I knew this movie was extremely my shit when you've got Vigo Mortensen just writhing on this insane bio rotating bed. And then Caprice just walks out being like, how's the bed? I'm like, oh, like that level of weirdness taken completely at face value. I'm like, oh, I am and this is so the fucking energy I love. So much of that energy in this particular film is just fucking discomfort, though. Like, and I don't, I don't want to watch two That's hours I... of Vigo Mortensen going. <laughs> good, like, it's not like... fun for me. And that anytime he was in that fucking eating chair, which just like basically just rocks him back and forth and throws him all over the place, and looks like. Every Cronenberg flesh machine that's been in, you know, this and Existence and everything else. I'm just like, oh, I hate this so much. Okay. I want this scene to be over. I'm not going to lie. That chair absolutely looks like something the CIA would force people into. In Hundred <laughs> percent. Like that chair legitimately looks torturous. Like I'm desperate to ask Vigo Mortensen what filming in that chair was like. The bed I could see being kind of cool. Maybe they put in some like massage chair technology into it. 
that chair looks legitimately like some like kind of fucking gulag torture chair. Yeah, and I, I feel like the only the only aspect of this movie that I found particularly interesting. Well, I mean, not the the one that I found the most interesting was like these two women that work for the repair shop that like are super fans of this like chair and of Saul and are like sexually into this idea of cutting people apart in this thing and turn out to also be some sort of uh assassins who it never explains to us who they are and what it is they're working for behind the scenes like why they murder this dude like that was the stuff that i was like no i'm interested in that no we're not we're not going to talk about that we're going to go back to vigo mortensen sitting in a chair oh my god energy Like they're in a completely different kind of media. And that media is a David Cronenberg HGTV show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fucking that I would watch. Yeah, I agreed. Yeah, I would watch the the orchid bed technicians all day long. I get this picture of David Cronenberg like remodeling people's house and it's like, yeah, I put a curtain here made that looked like it's made of human flesh. That'll be fun to like go from one room to another through that. And I'm like, Cronenberg, stop. <laughs> Cronenberg builders. <laughs> this old Cronenberg house. This old Berg. Um, I mean, Berg is just a city, but it's a Cronen. Anyway. The Cronen um, suburb. The Cronenburbs. <laughs> the Cronenburbs. So, That's a good one. What's good? Think, yeah. the, what do you think the plastic candy bar tastes like? It has plastic. that flavor. The one guy. Like, who, like, was killed by, like, fucking chewed and swallowed. So it clearly couldn't have been so gross that he would have just spat it out. Now, maybe it's just the purple and the flakes in it. But I'd like to imagine it's got, like, a wild berry type of flavor. Like, a real blueberry. Yeah, yeah. Like a like a fruit gusher. Yeah. Blueberry. Yeah, blue like, flavor. Does like, that Speedman trick this man into eating his toxic candy bar just because he was rude? Did he he even trick him or was it just like, I take your candy? I think part of me read that as him just trying to like natural selection people. Well, like he was he was listening to the two women and like invested in their conversation. And this dude just like sort of came in and elbowed him out of the way. And so he was like, well, let's see what happens with this dude. When I put down my candy bar, I bet this dude will try and eat it. You know, I think that's more likely. Way, we later learn is an undercover police officer, which is just like, well, I think that's fentanyl. Quick, let's put it in my mouth to make sure. Yeah, I don't know. there's a <laughs> lot the going. Police undercover subplot in this thing. Like, I didn't need any of that. I really think that was all Cronenberg trying to be noir. Like, I think Saul is meant to be like a noir protagonist. He is Cronenberg's Sam Spade. This movie is definitely one of those, like, if you're into it, you're into it. And one thing I will say at the top here is we talk about all the Cronenberg organs and shit like that. But the one thing that this movie is going to be a deal breaker for those of you who are not into it is mouth sounds. This is a, a very mouth sound heavy movie it's probably a really important part of the sound design and the point of the movie, but there's very intimate mouth sounds and various other bodily sounds in this film. Nothing so droll as like the humorous bodily sounds, the mostly uncomfortable, which I think, you know, again, is the point because this movie to me 
is a lot about the body, more so than a lot of the other Cronenberg stuff, you know, maybe exception of like Videodrome, where it's like, all hail the new flesh. Okay, that's definitely about the body. This movie has surgery of the new sex. Yeah, now he, he has moved on to all hail the new sex. Yeah, which... It's like, this movie is horny. This movie is crazy horny. But all of his movies are horny with the, like, the crazy flesh shit. Like, that's, it's, they Not are a all... Again, love this movie. Like, like, like <laughs> this movie sets itself up from the beginning to have the energy of, and then Vigo Mortensen and Leia Saido get naked in the sarcophagus, like, alien pod, and then just get sliced up for a few minutes. And yeah. it's like... Okay. Fun, sexy way. Yeah. It's sexy a- cutting. It's like, fucking, yeah, you do you, Cronenberg. Like, this movie invites you to just vibe, and it's a dark vibe, but I it's feel a like fun there- vibe if you can get with it. Yeah, well, I feel like there's there's more to it than just the vibe for me. Like, I was seeing the commentary about the body and progress and our relationship to our body, which, you know, again, I feel is proliferates David Cronenberg's work, but none of it really discusses it as much as this movie discusses it with these characters the way that they do, with them being artists. And then them also being in the midst of a, you know, the evolution revolution, and then this, like, decay that's all around them and trying to, you know, how, what the progress looks like for them. There's body standards, certainly, but the idea of accepting or rejecting the changes in your body, which also has to do with how the environment is affecting our bodies and aging. I love what you said about, like, the environment around them, because I love that there are no, like, nice, clean surfaces, like, in this world. Like, everything is rusted. Everything is, like, kind of falling apart. And there is that element of, like, there are no infections, so no one washes their hands, which, gross. Yeah. Wash your hands. Avoiding infection shouldn't be the only reason you wash your hands. Especially if you're going to go and putting them in people's mouth. Kristen Stewart. It feels like cutting each (laughs) other on the street. It feels very death and rebirth that this is a movie all about human evolution set against the backdrop of a world that is so clearly invisible decay. Right. And. Also, I mean, when you look at just how fucked up and janky that world is, it makes you like, man, maybe we should evolve to eat plastic. If we're going to keep polluting, maybe we should eat pollution. Maybe that's a pro. Maybe we solve on the problem of ourselves. Maybe I am insane for looking at Scott Speedman's plan and being like, well, maybe let's hear him out. No, I think that it's it's very pro his decision. It's, you know, it's about the, the corruption. What's what's your take on the uh, the evolution revolution, Megan? <laughs> Well, I think to me, one of the, one of the core, I guess, even most confusing, I'm not even going to call it confusing. It's actually, it makes perfect sense to me, but if I'm remembering correctly, then I should have just done a tally, but I think the only people who are actually allowed to evolve or to like to push evolution forward from within are men. So that sort of like gender politic was really odd to me. I feel like Cronenberg had something to say about it. I don't know that he said it and I don't know that he said it deftly, but it was odd to me that like, you know, at least from what we saw, which was Vito Morrison, Scott Speedman and the ear guy, everyone who was a part of this inner beauty pageant or like evolving was 
a man. It was a man who was doing this. I didn't know if it was intentional. I, I assume it had to be because everything in this movie was so intentional. Yeah. But I don't, like I said, I don't know that he really got his point across in that specific area. Yeah. Like, I know there's the one woman performance artist who has, like, all the scars, like, across her face. And that seems to be Caprice's character arc is her wanting to take a more active role in this evolution and stuff, which I wish had more focus. And yeah. been, like, more on. But it definitely feels intentional and gendered that it's only Saul and Brecken who we see as internally and truly biologically evolving humanity to the next level while like it's only these two male characters who do it and everyone else is just doing surgery or modifications though i do <laughs> love the society that seems to be on its way to just being a planet of xenobites of xenobites yeah <laughs> sorry this population that seems to be halfway on its way to being a planet of Cenobites from Hellraiser. Like they've already got torture yes. equal sex. Like they are already, they like give them a thousand years and they will be like, yup, we've got our planet. We are all crazy, pain-free torture sex people. And we invented puzzle box based portal technology to spread our crazy violent sex surgery to other planets. Yeah. There's, there is certainly that, commentary about the di di disappearance of pain hellraiser is actually a time loop movie and it's canon with crimes of the future i mean that would be really interesting but i think megan you make a really good point about how all of the characters that are leading in this conversation about evolution are male you certainly have male detractors but the female characters are not incredibly involved they're the artists that are working on things, but they are not creating things like the men are. And I, that does bother me a little bit, but you're the, yeah, you're totally right. Like, yeah, it's too, this movie is too intentional for that. Had any, it's never been accused of having any gender issues in his movies before. <laughs> like, yeah. This movie is too intentional for that level of gender yeah. not to be, if not intentional, then too heavy on the subconscious. There's a part of me that, you know, I was saying the whole like undercover and cops plot kind of doesn't work for me. Like, I think like the character of Coke, the cop, I don't know what he wants or what he's doing. He seems surprised that like Saul even wants to be part of it. Like he genuinely says he's surprised that, you know, the Saul Tensor wants to be undercover. And then like every information, every bit of information that Saul brings, and he's like, oh yeah, we kind of already knew about that. Oh yeah, we've been working on that, you know, underground. We just didn't feel like providing you with any information whatsoever. I mean, that's where, to me, where the noir elements really come in is this element of all the things the protagonist did didn't matter. Yeah. Like the plan failed. Like that felt very noir about it. Yeah, like nothing he did actually had that impact. I don't know. Yeah. There's just something very Chinatown about it that this detective like wins, that he completely gets his way, that he won without Saul even knowing what his objective was, which was just like keep the secret of this kid being born eating plastic, which was like, yay, conspiracy successfully kept. You have kept us from having matter eater lad and thus the Legion of Superheroes will never form. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the other thing just for me is that I think some of 
this movie working hinges on your like investment in this underground revolutionary conspiracy of you know these these guys changing the human body to be able to digest plastic and like all this but like i don't find scott speedman to be particularly compelling especially not as like that's a noticeable character of this movie i will say that's a very noticeable theme i found in scott speedman's career that he is not compelling (laughs) yeah like i feel like if I will make had... you watch Underworld one day. He will not be a oh, memorable part of it. He will be a very major. He is a very major part of Underworld and is very forgettable. I feel like Saul is so much like weirder and more sinister as the protagonist of this movie than Scott Speedman, who is supposed to be the like weird underground revolutionary. Is it's just like it's a very like pretty Hollywood attractive looking man. Who's like, yeah, we're gonna we're going underground and we're gonna change the world. And as, for all that we've talked about, like how dirty and ugly things look in this movie, it is full of nothing but skinny, attractive people. I would he like to say, extremely feels like he is. Yeah, Scott Beeman feels like he is the overwhelmed everyman thrust into a world beyond his comprehension, not the leader of the world beyond his comprehension, but. I will say, to me, from a transhumanist exploration level, I really like the idea of this movie is exploring, like, what is the official line between human and not human from a true biological and legal standpoint? What will the power of the state be in trying to maintain, like, in in order to uphold human biology? Who will try to advance human biology? I just find it very even if it's not the themes or like aren't super pertinent to our like everyday life of 2022 i still find it very interesting concepts and very well explored even if not fully explored it still gives you enough to make your mind wander and this movie doesn't have much to do with politics but yet it's very political just for the political situation of super into the future yeah Megan, i have a question mm-hmm. are you in new york i'm not i'm in la uh, oh okay so that's good to know because i want to ask have you been in any of those art scenes or i should say have you uh, witnessed any of those art scenes in either city i mean not really and i I think I'm probably a little bit too normcore to like go to any kind of performance art place and like feel normal. I mean, not that you're supposed to feel normal, but right. Uh, Just show up with your eight millimeter camera and you'll be fine. According to this movie, you'll fit right in every camera go- ever. Everybody with their eight millimeter in whatever year this is. Right. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done that much exploring of, like, any kind of performance art space here. I mean, like, a lot of people, I think I did a lot more of that in college. I went to college in Iowa City, which is a little liberal enclave in Iowa. Oh, nice. But, yeah, I mean, weird performance art spaces there. I've done, like, some weird festivals and played in, like, back rooms of bead shops and weird people doing weird, you know, human sculpture stuff. So... It's not unfamiliar, but not not of a New York, L.A., like, quite serious scene. 
I mean, the scenes, every scene, whether it be art or whatever media or sport or whatever, I mean, there is the gatekeeping and then there's the jadedness and the general jadedness. And I, you know, this movie does pick that up specifically with that art scene in mind. But I feel like there's a, there is that commentary about the scene culture and that is relatable to most niche scenes. Although this one seems to be pretty prolific, like we're pretty uh, popular. That's where the Yu-Gi-Oh connection comes from. This niche thing is the most popular. This entire society is based around this niche interest. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like you, like any of these kind of shonen thing, which is weird because like shonen stuff is very sport. You know, like this guy has these powers and that guy has those powers. And yeah, you can quantify fine art scene kind of stuff with that, which I think is really hilarious. And it goes into that with Vel- Velvet Buzzsaw does a really great job of of discussing that. Even if you're not in performance art, we are all in art and comics. Yeah. And so I think we could all relate to this. I felt this to be the most relatable moment of the whole movie. And it's when Saul is going to see the ear guys dance. And he is both simultaneously dismissing him as a poser while being visibly jealous of his crowd size. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. felt so fucking real. That sense of jealousy that he drew on his face. They're just so known. That yeah. sense of both like professional jealousy and a need to overcome it with his arrogant superiority. I'm like, as a defense mechanism, I'm like, that felt really fucking real and made me really like salt. And that's the genuineness of this, of the these portrayals, you know, even though the situation is so crazy, but it's so, you know, the characters act in really relatable ways, which makes it a lot easier to accept these crazy conceits. In terms of the character, I feel like there's a lot of Cronenberg himself here, which you know, the, you can say that about a lot of his movies because he has such a big part in the craft. Are you Go saying ahead. there might be something of himself in the gray-haired character who dresses in all black and is a like a absolute pioneer in his medium focused on body horror who has spawned a legion of imitators he finds lacking? But also kind of hates himself, which is why he's working undercover, we find out, because he's like, yeah, I kind of hate that my body's like this. I want it stop. Does Cronenberg actually like dress like Drista Warden? Does he dress? Does he go around with a hood and like a? I mean, I'm sure he has a face mask because you know pandemic. I but like he just, I assume he just dresses like uh, his character on Discovery. I forgot he was on Discovery. He is. He has show, he has some scenes with Michelle Yeoh, and it's delightful. Oh my god. Thank you for reminding. Now I have to watch the rest of Discovery because, like, that spaceship, that the freaking mushroom ship, is pretty Cronenberg in and of itself. Am I yeah, feeling up that he's a recurring character in the last few seasons? So he keeps showing up. Ah, oh, bless, bless this mess with his crazy glasses and <laughs> very serious. We are in mannerisms. like we are in like the year three thousand now, when people still got fucking Coke bottle glasses. <laughs> Yeah. So, yes, I do think that this movie is very much like very personal to David Cronenberg, which is why it does. It didn't bother me as much. The the weird, disparate gender portrayal, because it felt like it was so much about bodies and not just not about gender in terms of those bodies, even though like, 
you have to admit any transhumanist conversation or or body modification conversation is going to evoke a gender conversation if you really want to talk about representation in film or I should say in media. So, you know, I can't dismiss that entirely. I don't know about representation, but I do feel like this movie represents one end of the Kristen Stewart spectrum. <laughs> I, I, I think it's quite of the future on one end and like her as Princess Diana on the other and every other movie and every other performance falls somewhere in between these two characters. Megan, what did you think specifically as a Kristen Stewart stan? How how do you feel about this character of what is her name? Trim Timlin? Timlin. Yeah. yeah. Which is just such a fucking squirrely ass name for this squirrely ass motherfucker of a character. Really? I mean, truly. You know, the note that I have here is that in a movie where people are digging around in their own bodies and taking out tattooed organs. The thing that made me the most uncomfortable was Kristen Stewart's apparent heterosexuality and <sighs> attraction to Viggo Mortensen. That I found disgusting. Okay. In a, in a way that I was not disgusted by by some of the like gore and, and kind of surgery stuff. I mean, sort of kidding. But her performance was yeah, amazing. incredibly uncomfortable. The scene where they actually kiss, I was like, nah. Uh-huh. It's so. It, I'm like, wrong. whose idea was this? It's like, I love Viggo Mortensen. He gives a great performance. I look at him. I'm not. I'm not seeing much of the Aragorn swagger these days. <laughs> By design. I love that his attitude has been like, I know how Hollywood stars are supposed to be. Fuck you. I refuse. You and you. Mm-hmm. You, I, you will have my regular human body. Deal with it. Yeah, there was this also very personal kind of element to it that I was reading from that about Viggo Mortensen's uh, or his character's condition, Saul's condition. And this weird idea that Timlin was fetishizing him so much and he wasn't sure if he was into it. And then he decided that he really, really wasn't like the whole thing was like, I'm not really good at the old sex. Like he really wasn't into the sexuality. Like he never seemed that aroused by anything except for when he was getting the organs taken out the only thing that was arousing for him was pain which was that commentary on the the general jadedness of humanity and also this microcosm of the the scene where you know everybody's talking about that jadedness and trying to really push limits and in this case you know the the physical sensations are incorporated with the ideal which is the whole thing with performance art the sort of the whole definition of performance art that comment about fetishization and her character being that uncomfortable i thought was really interesting because so much of his character was about him being sick and there was a whole commentary that it was a the thesis that she said about how he was gaining agency over his own body and that's why his artwork yeah. is so profound. She meant that she thinks that he's actually willing himself to grow these organs. Yeah, and that's sort of the question of his artistic career. Is all these people have this theory that he's like growing these organs as a statement, where he's like, "No, these are tumors, and I just want them out of my body." And you know, if that can be something that I can have agency over, then I think, awesome. I think there's also a. Kristen Stewart's character I think there's also like kind of an element of like the toxic 
fan. Like she's fetishizing this parasocial relationship she has with this famous artist. Mm -hmm. But no, I think it's also the way that, you you know, they kind of have two conversations, so to speak, about sex. And one of them is this new sex, which he goes like, ooh, I'm into that. Yeah, new sex. And him being, I'm not good at the old sex. I think it's in addition to all the ways. open instead. Yeah, like in addition to all the ways, I think the elements that I think uh, Tim Wynn represents, I think it's also just representing of that Saul's character is something that must exist completely of this new evolved humanity who can no longer even do the old sex, who can no longer exist in the old modems of humanity. Yeah, and I think for me, I do think that there's a moment, there was a turning point from for sort of, I think my relationship with this film that was driven by Kristen Stewart. And it wasn't wasn't the hands in the mouth. It was it was much earlier. And like I said, for me at a certain point, quite early on, whether or not I was enjoying the movie became kind of immaterial. I've seen you know, I had to take a few film classes in college. I've seen plenty of movies that I didn't enjoy but learned something from, right? So I think you get to that point where I feel on this movie very comfortably middle. I'm like, I don't think I enjoyed it. I have not stopped thinking about it. And I watched it a little over a week ago, okay. which is for me, I think, you know, artistically a success, whether or not I enjoyed it. But the specific point that I'm talking about is in the very first performance that Timlin attends. And you see her with the organ registry guy, the kind of very strange man who she ends up outstranging, but it doesn't seem <laughs> like that's going to be the, the case at first. They're both um, real, real strange. Real strange. Whip, um, I believe. Whip it, yeah. Whip it. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So she's like watching this and while everybody else looks kind of thrilled by what's happening, she looks a little bit disgusted. And I think we learn later that it was it was more jealousy than any kind of, you know, actual kind of recoiling at, at what is happening conceptually or physically. But that was the moment that I think takes you and drives you a little bit further into a further circle of Cronenbergian hell, if you will. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where you kind of think, you know, you're like, OK, OK, I, I think I'm getting kind of an audience proxy here where something is strange about this and then we find that it is her attraction to him that is so strange and you're, you realize that things have gotten stranger on you and it's driven by Tim Lynn and that ends up being the case throughout the film right she's kind of your race to the bottom of fucking weirdness and that is in and of itself really impressive and I, I think like you were talking about Emily her performance and most of these performances are really fine-tuned, which is impressive. There's an incredible amount of control over scene and performance. And I think that's the thing that really, really stuck with me, whether or not I, I really liked the film or enjoyed watching it. Right. I, I think, like, going off of that and talking about the discussion, you mentioned it, Kristen Stewart being attracted to Viggo Mortensen. And this like, I find it so interesting and odd. And it may just be that, We've all sort of passed David Cronenberg by on this point, but like that his movies are so obsessed with weird sex and kink and things like that, but are extremely heteronormative and Mm -hmm. extremely binary. Mm -hmm. Like everybody is very male and or very female. And there's like Mm -hmm. 
very everybody everybody's straight despite the fact that they're all into like weird surgery shit with each other i don't know why gender would enter specifically into that relationship but well i don't know it's weird what i my queer reading of this and by queer reading i mean my absolute refusal to see a Kristen stewart character be heterosexual (laughs) is that her fetish goes so far that what she's attracted to isn't Vigo Mortensen himself so much as she is attracted to the organs and that like and uh, his changing body in her fantasy it's not that she is his new caprice it's that she becomes him and he becomes the caprice and she becomes the one generating like the organs and the newness so again this is me being like trying to rationalize it and find just that like nope i can't accept straight kristen stewart is that she is is that it is the fetish is the organs and the evolution regardless of the gender associated with that evolution yeah i think you're exactly right we're gonna i'm gonna go with that that's much more comforting yeah i think that's that is absolutely a valid reading of it but that also then raises the question of why in these in these stories it is always a very strict uh, gender binary for Cronenberg, like where the the guy is the one that's you know seeing this stuff and being horrified by what's going on. Well, women are frequently monstrous or dangerous, whether it's rabid or brood or and any number of his films a lot of the david Cronenberg movies that like the fly and dead ringers was another one that was really weird where there is like kind of a you know this objectification of the female character seeing those th- those movies as opposed to movies like the brood or this movie which are a lot more about the the sexuality and the gender of like the female characters are, are talked about in that way and they seem kind of monstrous they just want something from him yeah they all want to be able to produce things like he can. They they just want to take this ability from him. If it's only so very I'm a genius and everything. If only wants. all these creepy lessers could make things of true originality and beauty like Cronenberg. I mean Saul Tenser could. <laughs> I mean that's and that's very specific to this particular movie, that that envy that is seen with a lot of these characters that are especially female. But I feel like the weird flesh monster aspect of his movies is really does invite a queer reading like Ben, you were talking about where, and that's, that's a weird thing to say, but um, the, the fact that you have all this, that I was right. I mean, I, I, I I mean, I usually don't believe myself either. So I guess I get you. I'm on your side with that. (laughs) No, (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) I'm talking about like the monstrous flesh part invites a queer reading. But I mean, in the way that a lot of these horror movies talk about the other. Right. And then a lot of when you have a lot of queer viewers that relate to the the other in in these horror movies. And I kind of put myself in the in Cronenberg's shoes in this case where I'm like, if I want to talk about like weird monstrous sexuality and some weird flesh shit and like very off-putting shit i don't want to incorporate like the actual literal emotional 
and very profound queerness of actual people's queer relationships because it's more than just the sexuality. And I feel like in a lot of cases, the queer identity has been equated with this monstrous sexuality with people who are very homophobic and very queerphobic. So I feel like it would be really, really weird to incorporate the kind of flesh monster essence that Cronenberg discusses with his like weird, horny flesh monsters and have characters literally be queer unless they were like completely unrelated to whatever the flesh monster situation is. Does that make sense? If I'm understanding, you're saying pretty much that like it's maybe a good thing that there hasn't been more queer characters given what else he explores. It could come across really easily as queerness being monsterized. Yes, thank you. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a fine balance. I think there is something to that, but also David Cronenberg's been making movies for a long time. And at some point it's like, oh, the the first 50 years of X-Men, it's a metaphor but at some point, it seems like maybe you should have a queer X-Man. Also, um, I know queer audiences. I absolutely believe we will reclaim, like, the flesh monster and, like, call it a queen and tell it to slay. Yeah. Did you see what we did with Scarlet Witch after Ma- Melody of Melody of Madness? Melody of Madness. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Melody of Madness. <laughs> Can someone do that, please? <laughs> do, like, a Looney Tunes version of that? I mean, we already have uh, Sam Raimi. Being where they're look throwing what we did. Look at know, what... musical looks at each other is basically that, isn't it? I mean, right. look I what us that guys did with the Baba Duke, and that's not even the movie. That's just a Netflix glitch that we ran away with. <laughs> don't um, forget about Megan. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen that trailer. Oh, that's, I that's haven't. That's the horizon. Oh, sure. Yes. For queer audiences. You, you just know that's going to be covered on this podcast. Oh my god! I can't wait. <laughs> I'm getting. I'm gonna get a fake ID. I'm gonna. Sh- I'm gonna change my name to M Three Gan, and I can't wait. I'm gonna embrace that. I'm gonna learn the dance. I'm ready. You gotta find hell yeah that dress somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I like <laughs> that this movie explicitly brought up Lamarckian inheritance and how it is absolute nonsense, just so it could then go. But shut the fuck up. Actually, but it happened, though, so... Because, you know, like, I feel like Cronenberg was writing this movie and he had a moment where he's like, fucking goddamn Neil deGrasse Tyson is gonna fucking tweet about Lamarckian inheritance as if I don't know that it's bullshit, so I better write a fucking scene or that that asshole's gonna start tweeting at my movie. Neil Neil deGrasse Tyson is a physicist. He's not a fucking genetics scientist. Neil deGrasse Tyson is a full-time Twitter party pooper. Let, let him do his thing. I don't care. Guys, you remember when Neil deGrasse Tyson was cool? Now he's yeah. just like, actually, Tom Cruise was moving too fast out of the airplane and he would have died in Top Gun Maverick. It's like, cool. Thanks, Neil. Yeah, I know Star That's Trek is wrong, but it's okay because it's gay. Like, I don't care. Guys, um, did you know Ant-Man couldn't breathe at that because he's being too small? It's like, thanks, Neil. He made the air molecules smaller, too, as part yep. of it. As part. We should probably cut this weird rant about Neil deGrasse Tyson. Keep the initial joke. I feel that was solid. But then oh, after yeah. that, maybe. No, I'm ready to start a beef with Neil deGrasse Tyson. I okay. Think <laughs> it's been too long without a beef with a major business. Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah. come back on the show. We'll do Event Horizon again. I will totally do Event Just Horizon again with, with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Just him or screaming Sunshine. the whole time. 
what if we save sunshine for when we can get neil degrasse tyson on the show there's so many more movies that would be but he's probably already done that anyway i do want to know what neil degrasse tyson thinks about like these chairs and this furniture (laughs) again this is more of a biology standpoint but like I get that the chairs are constantly moving to make it so like you're constantly growing cancer organs or whatever are like in the right spot. No, I think it's like supposed to be like he's just in so much pain and he struggles with stuff that it's like, I think, again, I might be totally wrong. The same idea that certain like Parkinson's treatment equipment is supposed to like reduce or compensate. Oh, yeah. Shakes Mm -hmm. and tremors. I think it's supposed to be that idea to like assist him in the chewing and swallowing process that he otherwise struggles with. But also my big thing with those scenes is that orange and green goo looked real gross. And Viggo Mortensen puts it in his mouth quite a few times in this movie. What was that actually? Like, what did they actually make Viggo Mortensen eat? It looked like an omelet or no, actually, it looked like like a creme brulee or something or some kind of like uh, custard with salmon eggs in it. It may have been lychee boba, though, which are actually sweet. So that would have been less like upsetting. Again, I have a lot of questions for Vigo Mortensen because I feel like so much of filming of this movie just must have been like physically uncomfortable. And that's where the commentary on comfort with one's own body and aging and the effects of, I don't know, changes, whether they be external or internal and your agency over that. You know, I, I feel like that's where that connected with me. Also, because oh, I've shit. the movie's had... about puberty too. Fuck. Well, another theme. I mean, sure. I'm just just body <laughs> going through changes I, you can't control. Yeah, I but I mean, have to say, apparently, like reading up on this, apparently Viggo Mortensen was was injured for most of the making of this movie. He had quad trauma due to being kicked by a horse at the Kentucky Derby. Okay, as if that doesn't raise. A hundred other questions. Right? A non-participating horse at the Kentucky Derby. I'm sorry. Another, like, 50 questions. Apparently, as a result of that, he couldn't stand for more than two minutes at a time, which is why he is constantly kneeling and laying and sitting in this movie. It works really well for the film. And really sells this, like, tortured, artistic genius. Like, I really like that in this world where no one feels pain, the most famous is, like, this artist who does and also again so many questions what was that horse doing at the kentucky derby why do we go more instant around that horse who started it who <laughs> fucked with who first i have that so many question. questions i will say is perching throughout the film and then like everyone else started perching with him and i'm like is this like is this just part of the the future crimes the future we just perch everyone everyone perches okay, it was- I'm screwed. So that like this guy is just so constantly like at war with whatever his body is trying to become that he's just like constantly like hunched over, can't quite walk, needs all the specialized equipment. So to me, like I interpret it and now partly because the one like non-evolved human we saw eat the plastic candy bar started vomiting and dying like immediately. So to me, just like the length of seconds that go by before, like where without him vomiting and exploding, 
from uh, the purple candy bar makes me think that he survived it. But to me, it just reads as like this guy's rejection of himself and what his body is wanting to be is like it's not the organs growing that's making him feeble and in pain. It's him constantly cutting them out and forcing them to regrow that's making it do so. And that, you know, the smile and the single tear that him embracing whatever it is he's becoming is this relief from that pain that he's just been physically and emotionally just so racked with the whole movie. It's so apparently but yeah. real because Vigo Mortensen filmed the whole thing in an excruciating pain. Yeah. I mean, it, it does feel like a moment of freedom, which I think is carried pretty well. Like I, I get that pretty clearly, which maybe is meant to be relief and dying, but I don't know. I just feel like I know it's supposed to be inception, ambiguous ending, but I read it as a little bit just like, well, the other guy definitely started vomiting by now. So <laughs> uh, Megan, how do you interpret the ending? Yeah, I the ending for me was one of the most frustrating moments because I, like I said, the one thing that I took away from this was how careful it was. And I know that he's being careful in the ending. I know it was considered, but I was like, you're going to really, you're going to choose this opportunity to just like leave it kind of ambiguous. You're going to just choose to not say the thing here. So I think that was a little disagreement that David Cronenberg and I have about his movie that he made and spent a lot of time on. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> I was a little frustrated by it. I understand why it was there. I understand the function of it. I understand what he thought about it. Yeah, that didn't work for me. And the other thing that really didn't work for me, Ben, was something that you touched on, which was the inner beauty pageant never coming back. I did never came. Find- I never had any relevance. Yeah, I I finally made peace with it because I was I was like I don't think it's what David Cronenberg is trying to say, but what I think I got of it I got out of it was like. No matter what you're doing, there's always going to be this one really weird guy who's just making it weirder. Yeah, like so, that's like <laughs> yeah. the big twist with Willet is that like I'm running it, and it's like yeah, okay, <laughs> running what this thing that's weird. Okay, like, the inner beauty pageant. Apparently, it's us. Part of me wants to think like, oh, maybe this was like from a plot line that was in like a longer like original cut like assembly cut that again got cut down but i'm like i don't think cronenberg fucking cut a goddamn thing from this movie i think that no. there were things that were cut i will i will say that there were probably there were ideas in the very very early stages of the story because there is a huge there's a lot of things going on in this movie that we sort of barely dip into that still i feel are important like the the inner beauty pageant uh, is probably the on the bottom of the list of things that are that are relevant to the story but the noir thing i think is important you know the the zipper guy is important the yeah, one the thing that guy we, doesn't end up mattering either like, like for yeah because like doctor. i think he he matters a little bit a, but that was just to facilitate one fucking weird as hell sex scene well, that one was the whole this movie that I had trouble watching was her unzippering him and licking his internal organs. I was Ooh. like, yeah, no, thank you. Oh, and him <laughs> being like, don't let him fall out or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I it, It's interesting you guys talk about the structure of this movie because that was one thing that I was thinking of coming out of it because I think what the movie is, feels like it's trying to be, especially in those last minutes, is like the biopunk version of Blade Runner. Like, it wants mm-hmm. to be the mm-hmm. version of, yeah. of that where it's like 
maybe I am this thing that's sort of the replacement of humanity as we know it. Like, maybe, maybe that's the thing I, I have become. And it wants to leave it ambiguous in the same way. But also, I think, like you were talking about, there's a lot of aspects to this movie that feel like it's a much bigger world that he cares a lot about and wants to do more stuff with. And it feels like this world should be David Cronenberg's Twin Peaks. And instead, it's like he just made Firewalk with me. Like, that's yeah. the only thing he made. It's, that's it's a great way of putting it. That is a world, really good way of putting it. This feels like a world that could be and honestly probably should be subject to so much more exploration. And this German expressionist backdrop of everything. Like, it's so good. The setting is so good. All the art direction is so good. And it's like, mm, it, so, visually, it is a feat. Oh, yeah. It does seem like terry mcginnis batman beyond may drop into this movie at any moment though i think you're gonna fight the year guy so i think it seems like for as much as this movie is very thoughtful and deliberate and does have a lot to say i think we're kind of of the consensus that for as much as this movie has to say and as deep as it goes on certain subjects issues of gender and feminist issues are a bit of a blind spot for this film. Yes. This is not a feminist film. This this is a film with no LGBTQIA plus representation unless you count except, except what you forced by virtue yeah. of Kristen Stewart. Yeah. Except yeah, for, it, for what he doesn't have anything project. thoughtful to say about race. Yeah. Like, we no, but have I, a black character. Yeah. Yeah. At least. But it's not there's not yeah. There's no like it was great. I, I I enjoyed Detective Cope. I thought he was a, a fun... Detective cop? Oh, wow. His name really is Detective Cop. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you get paid the big bucks, Cronenberg. But no, I did very much like that actor. I just felt he was Good a actor. very uh, charismatic presence in the role. And yeah, again, served that very... That noir puppet master kind of you can't face of the system that can't be beat kind of character. Actually, with the with Detective Cop and Whippet and Saul Tenser and Caprice, the names of these characters are all really tongue in cheek. So there's our classic Cronenberg humor right there. The rest of the movie is decidedly unfunny, unless you're talking about like those kind of peep show awkward. And I'm talking about the t- the television program peep show awkwardness that is like almost bad enough that you want to crawl out of your skin so that's that we haven't talked about a child very much we think that we should because it's kind of a really important part of this movie that's really upsetting oh the kid dying well we have we this movie starts out with the the mother murdering her child and blaming the child saying that the child is a creature that was created invented by her ex-husband look she really hates legion of superheroes we've established that sure the reader lad had to go yeah and her okay no that's not me defending child murder (laughs) that's not very progressive at all yeah i feel like and we'll certainly talk about this in brood and, and probably other things but like 
women having cold detachment from things they should feel emotional towards, including their own children, is kind of a Cronenberg thing. Um, yeah. That, like, I don't know that it means anything in this movie other than that, like, it's just the thing he needs to do to set the plot in motion at the beginning. And the, the mom, even though she shows back up, does not prove to be much of a character. And honestly, neither is Scott Speedman. But, uh, I don't uh, know how much of that is to do with him being Scott Speedman. Again, like, <laughs> that's the thing, though. Like, the mom and Scott Speedman, like, you could switch those roles very easily. Like, it's a very deliberate choice to have the mother be the destructive force and the father be the loving, supportive presence who, like, passed on the future. Like, that's that's fucking it. Like, if it wasn't intentional, it's too much of a blind spot. Yeah. Yeah. The the mother being this character with very little. She's she, her again. Her performance is great. Well, she has agency. She yeah, has plenty of agency murdering sure. her child. Yeah. But she she isn't terribly explored. She's just unremorseful about it and she completely dehumanizing of her child. Which is also like it's weirdly aside. Like I, I feel like there's a lot of commentary, but there's it, the the whole evolution revolution is so kind of aside from the character driven stuff that's going on with uh, Saul and uh, Caprice and everybody. I think it's really cool. I in terms of like just a different perspective on that, it does water down any sort of message about that. Other than how, you know, that has managed to get through to Vigo Mortensen's character, despite him feeling so detached from it. And in certain ways, actively separating himself and being aggressive towards that as he is like working with the uh, the new vice. Yeah, it's complicated. And I love that shit. But again, I cannot say that it is saying anything progressive in any like really profound or, or powerful way. Yeah, uh, I wish I had been in the room when David Cronenberg found out about how fly spit disintegrates almost anything and how that's how they eat, because apparently that had a lasting effect on him, which has shown up several times in his yeah. films. To be a fly on the wall when he found that out. Um, that, I see what uh, I would there. I would not want to be a fly on the wall because he would be looking at me more than I'd be looking at him. Oh, to be a Jeff Goldblum on the wall. You know how I feel about that, but it's still crazy to me. The first time I saw Annie Hall and Jeff Goldblum just shows up for like a fucking 20 second appearance. And I thought it had to be like he's already famous and it's a cameo, not like way before he was famous, like he, uh, like nothing of an actor because he is just so immediately hysterical. You can't see him in that movie in that one scene he has without being like, who the fuck is that? Oh. Sorry, that's my little Jeff Goldblum aside, even though he has nothing to do with that episode. And I should have just saved the Annie Hall bed for the fly. Oh, but, oh we- well, I shot my shot early. Well, you can you could always edit and we could do it during the fly episode. There you go. Now, how do how do we feel about the, the climax of this film being the grotesquely displayed organs of the dead child i wish they'd put underwear on the child yes yeah that was not big one. really not not what i'm here for i mean presumably at that point it wasn't the real child anyway but still i mean i don't i don't need that yeah i hope so otherwise that like if that if that was the real child and it didn't violate any labor laws it a thousand percent should have 
So I'm going to say that it had to have been a dummy, but also oh, that was absolutely. I, a dummy. I didn't want to see. Also, I, I don't care. It was a good enough dummy. Put underwear on it. Yeah, these movies are so erotic, and we got a lot of naked ladies and a lot of the male gaze, but we don't have any hogs of like Viggo Mortensen or I don't know who else. I mean, we see all of or like the Man. except for his hog. Yeah, um, which is unacceptable when you think about it. Yeah, I think that that is is unfair. You know, that's that's not good representation right there, especially like, again, we talk about we should have gotten to see is binary. Like, I mean, that's like my only like my second Lord of the Rings joke. I've been pretty like austere about them tonight. I could have been way worse. You know, toss it. I mean, we know we don't get to see his shards of Narasol, so, you know, <laughs> oh, that's good. Anyway, guys, what do we think is do we recommend people see this movie? Is it worth watching? Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe you got to be an absolute fucking weirdo, but I sure as fuck had a great time. If you if you like Cronenberg, watch it. If you I don't like Cronenberg. Yeah. Is this a thumbs up or a thumbs down end of the day? I guess I know enjoyment <laughs> didn't matter, but. <laughs> yeah, to me, to me, that's that's my metric. If you're somebody who can go into a movie and be like, my enjoyment is separate from whether or not I will feel like I got something out of this then yes, give it a shot. Maybe you'll be one of those people that walked out like all the people at the film festival. <laughs> when did they that walk out? out. That, I believe that. I want to know when. Yeah, I, didn't hear, I didn't hear about that, but I find it extremely believable. I don't know who goes to a Cronenberg movie and then walks out because it's too weird. Like <laughs> There is a certain element of you should know what you're in for, but people are dumb like that. So. If, they, if they walked out during the, the child autopsy, I would understand though, which is kind of interesting because that's sort of the point. Which I think I can't tell, I can't decide. And I think this is again, like you said, Megan, like the when you're not sure, you know, when when you're still thinking about the movie at this point, I think that that's an artistic success, whether it's an important or profound artistic success, you know, we're not sure. That, but okay. the that whole bit of the movie being the most upsetting part of the movie and it being about the art being incredibly upsetting. I feel like it's either it was either smart or it was a cop out and I'm rapidly going between the two. But either way, I feel like it's worth considering. If, if people are walking out, though, again, that's why I love this movie beginning with incomprehensible garbage can eating slash child murder, because right away it's like either you're on board for this like carnival of weirdness or just like you just got to get the hell out. And I appreciate yeah. that it lets you know right off the bat and doesn't try to lull you in or waste too much of your time. Like, I imagine that, like, if you're walking out, you're being like, I'm three minutes in. Cool. Thanks for saving me like an afternoon. I will say that, that that whole 60 seconds of that kid on the beach was basically like that was all of the the scariness that old tried to create and failed with an entire film i don't know yeah. old failed. <laughs> i feel like failure that should just be the quote on the dvd box <laughs> this yeah, is I, bad i, I think like bad for me with this movie it's like you said it's a lot of vibes and ultimately it didn't work for me it's one of those things that like were there not a near infinite number of movies and TV shows and things coming out almost constantly at this point? And I'd be like, yeah, you know, it's worth your time to check it out. But like, I think 
I think if if you've listened to us talk about it or you you know at this point you probably know whether or not it's it's for you or not. And yeah, if you if those first few minutes uh you know tick a box for you, then that's it. For me, like it was I was rarely like disgusted by the movie, but like it didn't click for me. And especially early in the movie, I found it to be pretty sleepy. And maybe some of that is the like very slow and stylized delivery of a lot of the dialogue maybe it's howard shore's like slow pulsating score underneath all of it that like didn't do it for me either but like ultimately i was like yeah it's it's not for me and i'm sure like there are people for whom for whom it is but (laughs) yeah not not my thing i wouldn't i would not recommend it but Going from there, we should find some things to recommend beyond this. Megan, what what do you have to recommend to people? You know, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go a little bit of the obvious route and go with the other Kristen Stewart movie that came out recently this year. And if you haven't seen Spencer, go see that. I do feel like you might get out more out of it than than I did from Crimes of the Future. But another very deliberate performance by Kristen Stewart, a polarizing one for sure, but something that. I found that I enjoyed a lot and got a lot out of So talented. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I've heard interesting things about that one. Emily, what about you? Cronenberg is Cronenberg. And you could check out a Cronenberg movie. But if you want a movie that incorporates all of the Cronenberg weird flesh monsters, but is like a fun little slice of life high school story, check out the movie Funky Forest. It's a Japanese film and it's a bunch of vignettes about people these kids in a high school and they just are doing various high school like club related things but it's all involving some weird Cronenbergian monsters it is unlike anything else you will ever see except for maybe Cronenberg but the delivery is really deadpan and I if, just look it up look it up on YouTube there's a bunch of clips on YouTube Hideaki Anno is in it as an as as a character. It's like a cameo, so you know that's a thing. But yeah, it's called Funky Forest, and it's very weird. So you know, watch out. Right on, Ben. What about you? I also recommend Funky Forest, but I'm referring to Forest Whitaker's '70s tribute album. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> safe. Yeah. No, I recommend AMC's new show, Interview with the Vampire. It is wonderful. It is bloody. It is queer. It is sexy. It is real, real gay. It is funny. It is dark. It is the messy, gay, gothic vampire romance that if you're listening to this show, I know you need in your life. So AMC's Interview with the Vampire. Nice. So, yeah, I had uh, I've been doing scary movie month stuff, watching a lot of horror movies. And boy, I hit a slew of horror movies this last week that were very much not my thing. I I seem to remember Emily uh, Love Mad God, very much not my thing. Uh, I watched the Poughkeepsie tapes, which you'll you guys might remember Steens recommended to us way back when they were on the program. I yes. hated that movie. Didn't did not dig. I even got mad at the or watched the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's like a beloved one of the you know, top horror movies of all times. And the ending doesn't make a damn bit of sense just to put that out there. So (laughs) finally, I like, 
I was getting mad and depressed at my series of, of movies that I did not enjoy. So I took to the internet and I was just like, hey guys, I just want a movie where like a creature tries to kill some people and it's a horror movie and it's kind of enjoyable. And uh, our friend Benito Serino recommended the uh, Shudder original Deadstream to me. Now Deadstream is a, about a guy who is a uh, online streamer who has a channel where he... Uh, goes on and does a bunch of crazy stunts to face his fears. And he has, at the beginning of the movie, uh, been canceled for something that he has done on one of his... He's been demonetized. And he's just now getting back into, like, having sponsors and being able to make money streaming. And the only way he is doing this is he is putting himself in a position where he is uh, going into a haunted house and spending the night there. So goes in and sets up a bunch of like cameras and uh, decides he's going to spend the night at this this haunted house and try and make it through. As you might guess, things go horribly wrong. This movie is incredibly funny and still has some like jump scares in there. The main character is enough of an asshole that like it's fun to watch the house torture him to some extent even if you will eventually find yourself like rooting for him. But it's a ton of fun. It's all of like 87 minutes. It's like that relief of like, if you've seen one too many, you know, one too many Babadooks and Poughkeepsie tapes and Crimes of the Future through your your holiday watching. Uh, this is one that's like a nice, very palatable 87 minutes and, and you'll come out of it like having had a good time. Festive. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's Havellini. But yeah, that was that's it for us. I do want uh Megan, can you let people know where they can find you and find out more about what you do online? Of course. Uh the easiest way is probably Twitter. I'm just at Megan Logan, spelled without any unnecessary vowels or consonants. Straightforward to the point. I am gonna change it to M3 GAN though, so get me before I do that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. As for the rest of us, you can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter, at Mega underscore Moth on Instagram, and at Megamoth.net. Uh, ben is on Twitter at Ben the Con and on their website at BenConComics.com. And uh, finally, as for me, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at JRoom58 and on my website at JeremyWhitley.com. Uh, and of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, our website at ProgressivelyHorrified.Transistor.FM. And on Twitter at Prague Horror Pod, where we would love to hear from you. Any feedback you have, if you want to tell me how wrong I am about uh, Crimes of the Future, you're more than welcome to. You won't be the first one. You could tell us we're wrong, too. You could sure. tell Ben and me that we're wrong. I mean, it's valid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> My self-esteem is not high. You would win an argument with me. <laughs> uh, I will always throw you, though. I will keep eye contact and, and nod. And just not say anything. Oh, I'm real good at giving those like the blank, like dead eye stare where it's like no reaction <laughs> and just wait just for like just the no reaction to creep him out until like, I get myself out of the jam. Honestly, that <laughs> horrible eating chair is the best representation I've seen of what it's like to be on Twitter. Um, <laughs> just trying to eat. I'm saying we love to hear from you. We would love it if you rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it. Give us five stars. Help us find more listeners out there. And thanks again to Megan for joining us. It was great to have you. Of course. Thank, thanks so much, y'all. This was a great time. Thank thank you so this much was more fun on. than the movie by a lot for me. Ah. <laughs> That's why I like doing this show. Yeah, so, yeah that does tend to happen a lot. 
especially with the movies you don't enjoy so much. I, I'm, Some of the I'm movies glad that we were doing this for the podcast because I did feel the need to talk about it with somebody after watching it. Agreed. Yeah, I watched this while my girlfriend was out of town and I was like, I have never felt like I have made such a good move. She would have hated it. <laughs> yeah, my wife wouldn't have made it through uh, the boy being killed in the first five minutes. She would have been like, no, Alicia, yeah. Alicia would have been out immediately. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next week. And until next time, stay horrified. <laughs> Progressively Horrified is created by Jeremy Whitley and produced by Alicia Whitley. This episode featured Jeremy, Ben, Emily, and special guest Megan Logan. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and do not represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Colo 6 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. If you like this episode, you can support us on Patreon. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod or by email at ProgressivelyHorrified at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.